This is David Tarkington, lead pastor at First Family. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, go to firstfam.org or check out my blog at davidtarkington.com. have walked with uh, Jesus through uh, the previous chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, and just most recently, he has uh, been giving uh, illustrations and parables of what the kingdom of God is like to the crowds and to his disciples and those that were asking questions so he could under, so they could understand that, that what God really meant when he speaks of the kingdom of God because they had a preconceived idea of what it would look like. And everything that Jesus gave them seemed to be opposite of what they expected. You know, Jesus said it's like a mustard seed, it's like leaven, it's like seed, it's like soil. And so he's revealing that, that God's kingdom is not going to be necessarily what they expected. So it's been pretty intense teaching. And now we find in chapter 13, verse 53, kind of a break in the teaching, at least in the teaching on the kingdom parables. And, um, and how appropriate that, that it's on Mother's Day that we're in this passage, because at this point, Jesus really goes home to visit his mom. I'm sure it just all worked out today like that. But look at chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Based on that fact right there, this legitimizes this as a Mother's Day sermon. Because they reference Mary. Now we'll continue on. All right. Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We get the questions a lot, or at least I do, regarding the the grading of sin. Which sins are worse than other sins? And um, there is a passage where Jesus references the sins of Pilate being greater than others, but the greater, as he references it becomes very clear as you study that and understand that, that original language. He's not speaking of a hierarchy of sins. And I think people, we tend to want a hierarchy. We want these sins that, well, these are intentional and these are unintentional and therefore these are worse than others. And some will give them categorizations like mortal sins and others. But when you go to the Scripture, you realize pretty quickly that there really are no categorizations in that regard of worse than the other because what it comes down to is that every sin results in the very same thing. For the wages of sin is death. And death represented in that passage means this, that whether you intended to or did not intend to, sin is the nature of what we do when we are not living fully focused, 100% bullseye action on Jesus Christ and on God's Word and His law. And so we are a failed people. We are a broken people. And we can go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 and discover that. But when we talk about sin, it leads off... Well, just understand, all sin leads to the same thing. So quit categorizing them. However, there is this sin that is then asked about, the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. And I talked about this a few weeks ago, but Jesus brings us right back to that story or that reality when He speaks of an unpardonable, unforgivable sin. Something that is going to keep us away from God, going to keep us out of heaven, and it's going to be... I mean, it's not forgivable. And it ought to get our attention at this point. This passage reveals this sin and reveals its tragic nature. It's tragic not only for people that lived 2,000 years ago in Israel, but it's tragic for people that have lived ever since. It's tragic for us today. Those that do not know the Lord who are separated from Him because of sin in our lives. 
There is a clear understanding here that eternity is written on the hearts of all humanity. Even those who wish to discount the reality of the veracity of Scripture, who say that God is not real and Jesus is not who He says He is, there seems to be, and it's not a generational thing, it's not a millennial, Gen X, baby boomer kind of thing, it's a human thing, and it goes back really to the beginning of time, where people tend to want to know what matters and want to live lives that matter and hopefully are part of a story bigger than what they find themselves in. Nobody at their core of who they are is really satisfied just being a character or a, a, just a, a person in a crowd. Everybody wants to matter. And that's that self-focus that we all have. That's just a reality there. And so what happens in this first century Israel is that the people of God were wanting to matter and they believed they mattered and yet they had the prophets of old, they had the law of old, they had all these teachings for centuries. And they were awaiting what had been promised them, a kingdom. They were looking at the kingdom of Israel rising up again. They were wanting to make Israel great again. Right? And they wanted a king like David. That's what they were hoping for. And they were, they were all in on that. So Jesus shows up. He is that king. He is that Messiah. But because the people of God, His chosen ones, living in occupied territory, had so missed the point of what God desired, Jesus comes and they miss Him. He's the new king. He is the one greater than David. He is that promised Messiah. But they were looking for a military king. They were looking as an earthly power. And they were not expecting what Jesus was at this point. Fully God, fully man, redeemer and savior and rescuer. And you know why they weren't looking for a rescuer? The same reason many people we know today are not looking for a rescuer is because they don't know they need a rescuer. They're blinded to the reality that there is such a thing as eternity. And it is real. And so Jesus has come, and He is fulfilling that which He has come to do. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is fully God, fully man. It blows my mind trying to comprehend it, so I quit trying to explain it. I just accept it. And here He is after weeks of miracles and teachings. And let me just say, and those of you that are teachers and that lecture a lot, and those of you that preach or have, you know that the preaching and the teaching and the preparation, it, it can really wear you out after a time. A full, teachers will, right teachers, a full day of teaching can tire you out just a bit, right? And so, amen, all right. So it can, so just imagine this, Jesus is teaching, master teacher, he's still fully human, so he's teaching, that's got to be draining. He's not only teaching, he's healing people. He's doing amazing miracles. He's making sick people well and dead people live and blind people see and things that most of us aren't doing, but he's doing that. Then, added on top of that, he is having confrontational discussions. How's that? That's a nice way to put it. With the religious leaders in every city he goes to. So he's having debates. Not only is it just teaching, not only is it preaching, it's debating and it's healing. And, and, and physically, it's going to take a toll, and he's tired. And so what we have at this juncture in the story is a decision on his part to go back home. Now, there are a lot of reading. You know, don't read into why. I don't know why he's back in Nazareth, but he goes back to Nazareth. I tend to think he's going back to Nazareth because his mama lives there. I mean, it's really not much deeper than that. There's mama. Haven't seen her. Been out doing the work. Going to go home, right? But I don't know if, if this is the case for, for you. Maybe you can relate to this. Uh, and if your parents are still alive, maybe you're still kind of relating to this, but 
there, there often comes a point when you grow up, you become an adult, and many of you move away from home, or at least you move out of the bedroom, right? And so you moved away from home. And maybe it's at school, maybe it's at college or the university, or maybe you've got a job, and then you come back home. And when you come back home, if your parents didn't sell the house, or if, or if they didn't do what that one guy did on the commercial and renovate your bedroom into a, an office, right? So your old bedroom is still there, your old house is, you ever, you ever have that reality? You go back home, it's the same bedroom, it's the same bed, it's the same room. I mean, nothing's really happened. You're 30, it looks like you're 15. So you go back home, and, and, and it's really weird because you're, 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 maybe you're married now too, which that, that just adds another weird level to going back home to your 15-year-old bedroom. But you're there, and it's home. And if it's a small town, and maybe you moved away from the small town, you go back to the small town, maybe you're, maybe you're reconnecting with some old buddies because that, that happens, right? Because every group, let's just say you grow up, and, you, and you're in a small town, you go to junior high and high school with a group of guys or girls, and, and then you move away, and maybe you have a career, and you're living in another city now. It doesn't have to be that far away, but it's just far enough away that it's not in the same region. And you come home, but there are always those friends that didn't move away. And as close as you used to be, and now it seems like you're on, you're on different pages. You're, just kind, you're, not, you're not mad. It's just weird. It's just different. So I imagine Jesus, he has entered into public ministry, and he has been doing this ministry for two to three years, right? Comes back home to Nazareth to visit mom. We have the indicator there just in case there were questions. Yes, he was not an only child. He had brothers. He had sisters. The brothers and sisters were the children of Mary and Joseph. So he has a full family there. He has people he grew up with. I mean, he lived 30 years there, except for a little bit of time in Bethlehem and a little bit of time in Egypt. He lived most of his life there. So these people know him. And let me just say, going home should be safe, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it be safe just to go home? It's just my old buds. It's my old friends. We grew up together. Everybody knows everybody. It is a small town. Nazareth is small. It's a tiny dot on a tiny country in the middle of the world right here. And he goes home. And maybe he goes back to the same old house. I mean, I don't know. We, don't, we believe that Joseph has at this point died. Even though he's referenced, we know that he doesn't show up in the stories anymore. So it's likely that he's not around. Mary's still there. The other brothers and sisters are there. And maybe Jesus goes back home to the same old house. And I don't care, just so you know, just, you, know you can be 30, you can be 13. Mama is still mama. And Mary is mama. We see indicators of how she treated him at that wedding, but we won't get into that today. Jesus, go get some wine. Do that. Do it right now. And bring out the good stuff. So he goes back home. Maybe it's Mother's Day. I don't know. I'm just conjecture there. But he's there. And then he does, and just, so, just because he's home doesn't mean he's off mission. He didn't clock out. But he's home. And when he goes home, he goes to the place he always goes to, the synagogue. Remember, Jesus grew up in favor with God and man. He was active in the synagogue, which would have been the church of the day for them in that Jewish world, uh, even today, I guess. But they meet on the Sabbath, and he goes to the synagogue, and there's teaching, and there's reading of the, to- of the Torah. And uh, he is there as he would, and he goes in, and they welcome him, and he teaches. And it's an amazing moment. This is not out of the ordinary. Good old boy comes home after being away for a while. Oh, Jesus is back. Here, read the scroll for us today, and we'll talk about it. Uh, it's not weird. This is what happens. But when he reads the scroll that day, and he teaches that day, it says that the people in the congregation were amazed. They were astonished. They could not believe their ears. 
Because Jesus is, is expounding on some things that they had, they, first of all, they're thinking there's no way he knows this. How does he know this? They're amazed at his abilities. They're amazed at his connecting of, of illustrations with stories. And they're probably amazed at how harsh his teaching is. But understand this. This is not a picture of the kid who grew up in church and decided to go to seminary and got an opportunity to preach in front of his home people. That happens. Or maybe he didn't go to seminary, but he did some study. Now, I remember when I surrendered to full-time ministry. I was in college. I was finishing, finishing up my last year of college, and, and God got a hold of me. He changed my plans. I had a plan, but God said, I've got a better one. He changed it, and, and I, was, I surrendered to full-time ministry. That's the Baptist way of saying that God wants me to be a preacher, and I don't know that I want to be, but that's what he wants me to be, so that's what I'm going to be. Is that a good, good way of explaining it? I'm excited about it, but I don't know what that means. And I knew that I was going to go to seminary because I knew I needed training and I needed that. And so I was encouraged to do that. So there was that point at some point within that first year in the little church in Fort Worth where I was a teenager, then I was the volunteer youth pastor, then I was the part-time youth director, and I was at seminary, that they begin to, that to they're, they're seeing, you know, I'm in this for the long haul, and they give me the opportunity to preach. And, and just so you know, I've been on this end of it, and I've been on that end of it. When you grow up someplace, uh, Jacob, can you relate? So when you grow up somewhere and you get the opportunity to preach in front of your home church, it's a little nerve-wracking. You've got about 15 years of sermons that you sat in the congregation thinking, I can do much better than the preacher. Yeah, there it is. See, I'm just waiting, just waiting. So, and I'm going, I could do that, I could do that. Then that opportunity comes, and I'm preaching that sermon, and thank God. They didn't record it. So, um, but I remember it wasn't good. It just, you know, it just, it wasn't heretical. It just wasn't good. And, um, and I remember folks in the congregation, my old Sunday school teachers, people, my parents, my parents' friends, they're all one, they're paying attention and they're all leaning a little forward. It's that, it's that congregation of encouragement because they know it's hard and they know it's not good, but they want it to be good, Right? <laughs> Oh, it's okay. It's okay. And and you know how you and here's the thing, you know how you become better at public speaking and in preaching and it's it, it, you get better by doing it. So, we give our guys a lot of opportunities because we know one, we have no question about the doctrine of the gospel they're presenting, but they have to have opportunities to put it together to present it. They just do. And uh so you know like Brian is preaching next week at Oak Harbor. We we have an opportunity for. Him. We, so we give our guys time to do that. But I will tell you this, Jesus, the response of the people was not quite that encouraging. Now, Brandon's not here. Brandon Phillips, I don't know if uh, Phil and Mary are here today, but Brandon is, uh, he grew up in our church. Many of you know Brandon Phillips. I love Brandon. Man, I, I remember him from elementary school all the way through junior high and high school. I love him more now than I did then, just so you know. But it was, he's a great guy. He, too, surrendered to ministry. So he, 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 we called him, he actually went to Baptist College of Florida. We called him, put him on our staff. He was our Creekman church uh, campus minister for a while. He was finishing up seminary through the extension through New Orleans Baptist Seminary here in Jacksonville. He was taking those classes. And I had a, and I remember this, and I still joke with him about it, but uh, he was preaching on a Wednesday night here. I had a series through the book of Ephesians. I was still here. wanted to give him opportunity. I said, hey, we're preaching through Ephesians, and oh, you get the marriage passage. Enjoy that. So he's going to preach that. I think he'd been married like eight months, so he was an expert. And uh, and I remember he, st he was studying, he was prepping, but he'd never really preached a sermon before. 
Now, by the way, just go ahead. We'll jump ahead. He's a youth pastor. He's in Trinity Baptist in Keystone, knocking it out of the park, doing a great work. I mean, and can, and can teach and preach and does all that well. But this was one of the first times. And he preached. And I was here. And I, was, I had found myself shifting to the other role. You can do it. It's okay. Amen. I'm amen and stuff that, no, you don't, I just amen in anything. Come on. I'm encouraging. Let's do it. Let's get him over the finish line. And he did. And he told me, I think he goes, he, he, when we finished, he's like, man, that was brutal. I said, you should have been where I was. Um, <laughs> but but here, here's even better. And I'll, you know, record it, send it to Brandon. We've talked about it. One of our dear, faithful, encouraging, Barnabas-like men in our church. I mean, really, just, he's not here right now, so I'm going to talk about it. He, 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 he came up to Brandon at the close of that service just with a word of encouragement. He's done this with me many times. And he came up to Brandon and he said, Brandon, man, I'm so excited that you've surrendered to ministry and, and you're in seminary now? He goes, yeah, yeah, that's right. He goes, well, I'm just so glad that you preached tonight. And then he said this to him. He said, but you know, once you have that preaching class, it's going to be a lot better. <laughs> and, I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there while he's saying it and, I, and then I'm going. Because Brandon then says this. I had that class last semester. <laughs> to which our dear friend said, oh, and just walked off. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, not much here. So well, I tell you that, but because that's often what happens when the guy comes home and gets the opportunity to preach. I preached at my grandparents' church in the past. I preached at my in-laws' church. Oh, you're in town? Come on. It's just a very encouraging thing. That is not what's happening here. Jesus is our friend. He's our guy. He's back home. Yeah, Jesus, come on into the synagogue. Read this and let us know what you think. This teaching. And he teaches. And as soon as he says what he says, they respond. The crowd responds this way. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Is he not Mary's son? Don't we know all of his brothers? Don't we know his sisters? Where did this man get all these things? Here's what happened. The unexpected showed up. They did not expect. And here's something else you discover pretty quickly. These are the guys in the room that knew Jesus since he was a little kid. They knew his mom and dad. They knew his brothers. They're the same age. They played with him when they were kids. They're older. They're buddies with his parents. I mean, this is family. This is small town. And they thought they knew Jesus, but it becomes very clear that they knew Jesus, but they did not know Jesus. And that was threatening. And you would think they would be proud of what he had to say, but they were not proud of what he had to say because that amazement, just think of it this way. The amazement and the astonishment at the incredible teaching that Jesus gives quickly shifts to who do you think you are? We went to school together. We played together. We had dinner together. Who do you think you are? Now, I'm going to take you to another passage. Same town. Same synagogue, probably the same crowd. Small towns don't have huge turnovers. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. This is a couple of years prior to what I just read. It says that Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. As was his custom. That's why when Jesus shows up, it's not a big deal that he's teaching. He's supposed to. Verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all the eyes of everybody in the room in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they even said, Is this not Joseph's son? So you have the same synagogue and the same people in the same room, the same Jesus, same scripture, maybe not the same passage, but he reads it, he teaches it. And they respond with, Isn't this Joseph's son? This is amazing. And in Jesus, in that Luke passage, one of my favorite, that's what we call his inaugural address before his entrance into public ministry or as he entered into public ministry because he declared right there everything he was going to do. There should be no question as to what did Jesus come to do. Someone asks you, what did Jesus come to do? Well, he came to die on a cross. Well, yeah, he did, but here it is. He told us. He said, "Uh, Spirit of the Lord is on me. Uh, he's quoting the Old Testament. These guys have heard this for centuries. And he says, I've come to proclaim the good news, the gospel. I'm going to give it to the poor. I've come to proclaim freedom to the captives. Everybody's captive to sin. I'm going to, re- I'm going to help them escape. They don't even know they're captive, but I'm going to get them free. I've come to give sight to the blind, not just physically blind, but the spiritually blind. And I'm going to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's everybody. He said, that's what I've come to do. Now, how did he do it? Through the cross, through the resurrection, he, through his life. That is, he has paid the penalty for sin. But that is what he came to do. And everything is all well and good because Isaiah's passage has been read many, many times in that synagogue and in every synagogue around the world, I'm sure. But on that day, Jesus read it, rolled it up, gave it back to the attendant, sat down and said, and today you are so fortunate because I'm the guy that's talking about. And initially it says they were amazed. Well, that's interesting. But then Jesus went on. And in the following verses, he began to explain what that meant. And I will tell you this, when he began to explain what that meant, that he was the Messiah, that he was the one that came, that he was the one that was going to proclaim the gospel, that he is the fulfillment of the gospel, when he laid it all out for them, the crowd he grew up with that celebrated, oh, good little Joe's boy, is now no longer happy with him. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Did you, you ever been in a church where it turned like that? This went from a worship service to a business meeting like that. A bad business meeting. Now, I don't have to go too deep. We've got enough church history in America to recognize what we mean when we say bad church business meetings. Because wrath became the theme. Everybody's angry. And it got even worse. It says they rose up and they drove him out of town and they brought him to the brow of a hill of a cliff which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I just think this I just, little pause on this is one of my favorite parts of the story. Now, we've been to this place. Remember, some of those that went to Israel with me. This is just, I think, south of Nazareth. You can look back and see where the city really is now. It's much bigger than it used to be. But there is this cliff. Now, there's a, everything's been identified as a holy site. But there's this cliff there. And you can go up to the edge of that cliff and you can look down and, and as, the, as you go look down the cliff, here's what we know. Living people on top of cliff, thrown down this cliff, become dead people. That's what happens. This is not a game. This is not just a church split. This is not just I'm angry at the boy that came home and taught something I didn't like. This is such heresy. We are so offended. We have our feelings hurt. We are so angry. We're going to kill Joseph and Mary's boy. So they drag him out to the edge of the cliff. Now here's where I, I know about five million years into eternity, I'm going to ask God if I can see a replay of this. 
Because this just is minor story, but amazing. He's with the church that becomes a mob, and they're at the edge of the cliff ready to throw him over, right? And it's verse 30, what does it say? It says, uh, I think it's 30, yeah. But passing through their midst, he went away. We get nothing else but that. But I, my mind goes all over the place. I'm thinking, what is happening? Crowd, you know, rabble, 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 rabble. We're going to kill him, going to kill him, going to kill him, going to kill him. And all of a sudden, he, what's he do? What's he do? Time out. Everybody freezes. That's what I'm thinking. For those that are like in their 40s, this is the save by the bell moment, right? Okay, so Zach, time out. Everybody freezes. And he just kind of looks around and goes, and walks away. And I don't, we don't get anything else because he comes back to Nazareth and no one said, hey, remember when we were trying to kill you and you just kind of disappeared? We don't get any of that. I want to know that story. I know it doesn't change anything. I just, I want to know. So, but why didn't he let him kill him? You know why? Because it wasn't time for the cross yet. Because he said what I've come to do, he has to do it. But, and here's another huge thing. If you ever went back to your hometown to visit your buddies and hang out with mom and the brothers, and everybody in town, when you visited church, got mad, got, grabbed you, and took you to the edge of the cliff to kill you, would you go back to that same church? There are people that leave churches for a lot less nowadays, right? You know, I was offended. Somebody's in my parking spot. I don't like the music. I don't like the way they dress. Somebody was rude to me. Oh, they took me to a mountain and tried to kill me. That is a legit possible reason to change churches. All the other garbage just fall away. But look at this. There's these bookend stories of Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth. Same Nazareth, same synagogue, same Jesus. One at the beginning of his ministry and one in the midst but closer to the end. And the results are similar. These are not statements of an adoring fan base. This is not a crowd that's so excited to see him. They go from offended to frustrated to insulted, but then it's defined what they are, and this is unforgivable. They're unbelieving. Back to Matthew's passage, it says in closing, he did not do many great works there. And his hometown was guilty of the sin of unbelief. Have you ever noticed that, that Jesus' enemies often never question His power or miracles? They never really deny His wisdom. They just ask where it comes from. But here, there is total denial of who He is. Those who grew up with Him that knew His family and should have understood suffered from this great sin of unbelief. Why didn't Jesus do many great works in His hometown? Is because it would not have mattered. And there are a lot of ministries and a lot of plans and a lot of programming out there where a lot of resources and a lot of effort are put in to try to, to, to impact areas that are really just unbelieving areas. And you need to move on to the next area, I guess. Because he could have stayed in Nazareth and had the... <laughs> but it's not going to make much difference. Because here's what unbelief does. Unbelief blinds. It blinds us. Some of you are believers and many of you are Christians today and you came to know Christ maybe later in life and, and, and you just sat overwhelmed with the reality that how blind you were before you said yes to Jesus and why didn't you say yes earlier and how many years you wasted outside of the will of God and now you're there and you can't go back but you're at least thankful you're there and you talk to your friends and your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers and you're trying to say, no, you don't get it. Jesus really does save you, really does give you life, really does give you purpose and they look at you like, you are a weirdo, you're now a religious nut and I don't want to talk to you anymore and you can't understand why they don't see it and they don't see it because they are blind. Unbelief blinds us to the obvious. And for those that it does not blind, it definitely blurs. 
I didn't used to wear glasses, but I do now. I've been wearing them for many years. In high school, I finally convinced my parents I needed glasses when I said I can't see the, ba- uh, the, the scoreboard on the basketball when I'm playing basketball in the gym. And they went, oh, so they finally got me glasses, and it had absolutely no impact on my scoring. Just so you know, you can average two with or without glasses, you know. Anyway, so I have glasses now. And, and, and over the years, the eyesight has gotten worse. In fact, right now that I've taken these off, all of you are blurry. In fact, right here it's clear, but beyond my hand it's blurry. That's how bad it is. And it's just years of, of its age and computers and all that other stuff. And I often wonder if I lived back before the era of glasses and, and uh, prescription lenses, if I would just be considered a blind guy, because everything is blurry. But some people, because of unbelief, they live blurry. They live blurry. And, and, and in this unbelief, this blurred unbelief leads to the acceptance of half-truths. And a half-truth is a full lie, in case you haven't followed that. A half-truth does not have the fullness of the gospel, and that's what happens today as well. That's where people say, well, Jesus may have been a good guy, but he's really not divine. And Jesus is, you're, you're intolerant to say Jesus is the only way, and, and, and that's a half-truth. They say, well, he was a good teacher and all, and he was moral and all of that, but, but seriously, don't we all just worship the same God and call him different names, and you get all of this stuff, and then you get these people that say, you're so intolerant. What about that guy that lives in a tribe in the middle of South Africa or, or Africa or South America? And it just, you know, Jesus is the way. It amazes me how many people are so concerned about the unnamed guy living in a tribe in Africa. They're concerned enough about the unnamed guy living in a tribe in Africa just to justify themselves not saying yes to Jesus, but not concerned enough to actually say yes to Jesus and go tell the unnamed guy. <clears throat> not enough to go be on mission. Not enough to share this truth. And so it's a bogus concept when you, when you get that, and it's all based on unbelief. All right, so let's go to the last one. What, what, third thing, unbelief blinds, unbelief blurs, and unbelief is the basis for all sin. All sin. Well, yeah, I thought we are categorizing. No, 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 all sin. Every sin finds unbelief ultimately as its foundation. Well, I know I sinned. I sinned against my wife. I sinned against my kids. I sinned against my, I mean, I did this. I said that. Well, ultimately what that means is you don't believe God at that moment. You've just stopped believing. Now, this, this makes the homecoming of Jesus to visit his mom a little bittersweet. He goes to the synagogue, and he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of the unbelief. We live in a church culture today, especially in the West, in America, that is, uh, is pretty severe and pretty, pretty uh, frustrating for a lot in ministry and a lot in the church today. There, there, are, there are generations of people wondering, how did we get the way we are? There are people praying for revival. Well, I'm okay with praying for revival, but you probably ought to start evangelizing and doing some renewal because revival only wakes up dead Christians, and, and, and we need lost people to get saved. So that's a wholly different, different kind of world. I'm all for praying for revival, but I, I would just pray for, for God's heart. But here's what I think is happening. This hit me this morning, and it's just a question. It's just a question I'm asking. We, we, are, we are tracking churches all over the place. We, we are revitalizing churches that are on the... We look at the bell curve of the church life. You know, churches have lives, lifespans. Local churches have lifespans. 
It's a bell curve. You launch, you're excited, you make a difference. If you do it well, you're at strategic growth and very healthy and you're replicating. And then over time, you start in the maintenance mode just to keep everything going. Interesting, inter- I'll, I'll share this later as I put all the notes together, but at a conference I went to, this exciting point where everybody's joining and getting saved and the point where everybody's a little bit frustrated because now we're in maintenance mode. The indicators are you're in maintenance mode when you talk more about who left and bylaws. You're in exciting growth mode when you're talking about how many baptisms. And many churches start the launch mode and never make it to the top. They jump right across to dying. Nevertheless, that's another story. So once you find yourself in, and here's another thing, maintenance mode and and that, that healthy growth mode, they feel exactly the same. And unfortunately, you never realize you're there until it's too late. My role as your shepherd pastor is to wake you up and say, okay, we're here. Let's do this. We've got a lot more to do. Well, can't we do the things we used to do? Sure, yeah, we can just keep doing things we used to do. Sure, sure. Because that's what a lot of churches are doing. And people are wondering, what's happening? Why has there been a great awakening? We baptized 1,200 people in Florida last Sunday. 1,240 or something like that. Through the uh, coast-to-coast baptisms. We had six out of our campus. I was really excited about six. I'm frustrated we didn't have 60. Because I know 60 lost people. Why don't we see this? It hit me this morning, and maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I'll, I'll admit I'm fully, uh, fully possible that I'm wrong. But we've watched it in Europe, and now we're seeing it in America, and we're watching the frustration of trying to figure out what's going on in the American evangelical church and why we're not seeing the growth we used to and why we're not seeing the ministry we used to. And, and I don't think we need to do what we used to do because I think there are eras and there are times, and, you, and strategies are good, but then, uh, apart from a movement of the Spirit of God, it's really going to be fruitless. But here's where it hit me this morning. Is it possible, is it possible that there are a lot of empty seats in here and there are more lost people out there that we're not engaging than we are and that we are, not just us, but every church in the States right now, those that are doing great are being celebrated, but while there are 30 in Jacksonville right now that will close within two years, we know that, unless something changes. Where is the latest Great Awakening? Where is that latest movement of the Spirit of God where hundreds and thousands are saying yes to Jesus and are walking away from a life of of, of sin and walking away from a life that would leave them with no hope to hope in Jesus Christ? Why is it not happening? And I wonder, I just wonder, is it possible that the church in America has stopped believing? And if what we are seeing and experiencing is exactly what we have prepared and planned to see and experience, because I'll confess to you, there are many Sunday mornings where my expectations for Sunday are three services and lunch. And if a movement of God were to take place and many people were to come and to be responsive to the Spirit of God, I would probably be surprised. And how how wrong is that? Jesus could be in our midst and you miss Him? And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Oh, Lord, why are you not doing many mighty works in America right now? Oh, I know he's doing a lot of things, but why not the many mighty works that we're asking for? Why not the movement of the Spirit of God? Why not the, the, the change? Why not the, the, the groundswell, grassroots effort of churches just, just in, engaging lost people intentionally and strategically and lost people saying yes to Jesus and, and the gospel doing what the gospel does? Why, Lord, right now? And is it possible that God is saying, do you remember Nazareth? How can you sit in Nazareth synagogue with the guy that walks on water, the guy that heals sick people, the guy that makes dead people alive, and the guy that teaches the word in the most profound way and say, we don't like it, we don't believe it, but that's what happened. 
Could it be? Could it be that renewal and revival will only happen when the church of Jesus Christ in our country and around the world says, yes, Lord, we do believe, and then believes? See, I think often we get exactly what we expect. And I think there, this is a good reminder of why, why you keep praying for your kids, why you keep praying for your neighbors, why you pray and act on what you're praying on? Why you share the gospel with those that are lost and far from God? Why you quit expecting professional Christians to do all the Christian work? Sometimes we fall into that trap because apparently we just don't believe it anymore. Father, I pray that we will not be Nazareth. And I thank you, Lord, for this message. Jesus comes home. And his family and friends don't even recognize who he truly is.